And again, we live in a world where it's, they're confused that no one could change when, you, when a young person is even remotely struggling with their gender, the counseling and the idea and the modern thought is, well, go explore it, have at it. And yet, as you heard, our God has something much deeper in mind. I uh, would like to spend our time addressing the root issues to sexual and re relational brokenness. And um, as a few even in between the break and I've heard over the years, you're going to hear that the things that are talked about today are applicable to everyone in this room. There's some nuances to, to same-sex attraction, to transgender, to some kind of fixation that, that maybe isn't applicable to others. But the reality is, as was mentioned before, the issue at hand is relational and the solution is relational. And so I think it would be helpful to unpack what that means in order for, well, a couple of reasons. One is for parents and caregivers and guardians to, to be prepared uh, to know what some of the deeper needs are for children as they're growing up. I think it's safe to say that a lack of something in a, childhood's, a child's life potentially will lead in a wrong direction and a filling of that would lead in a different direction. Some of that's common sense, but I don't know how many times we pause to really consider these things. Also, talking about the root issues, begin to uncover the deeper things for those who are currently in this room, who have issues of bondage and confusion in your life and are seeking restoration and healing. And so again, I think at times we can look at, at, the, at this, this issue from a symptomatic point of view, the, le the legal issues at hand, do we bake a cake for them or not? Do we go to the wedding or not? How do I deal with the lesbian neighbor next door? How do we love them better, et cetera? Those are great and necessary questions, but I think if we don't understand the core issue at the very beginning, I don't think we're equipped to answer those symptomatic questions. So good questions to ask, but let's address what's really happening here. And so as I said, we're gonna unpack this. I'm gonna share for a bit, and then Kathy Grace is gonna come up and share a bit from a women's perspective, as well as some other points. But um, this is what we're up against. We need to recognize what the issue is at hand. And, and the big issue that people will look at, and the, and the thing we learn even in high school, is the difference between something that's nurture and something that's nature, right? Those are the questions at hand, and we look at it even from a, from a biological point of view. So let's look at that first, because that's a question I think even people in this room, it's like, well, aren't people actually born with this? We're born into sin, so why not have a, a born with a gay gene that, that we need to deal with and, and contend with? There are explanations that come from this. So biological and psychosocial uh, issues, relational issues. The biological question at hand is, was I born with an unchangeable trait, desire, or struggle? Is this something innate within me? Um, just as much as I said, the color of your skin. You don't choose that, you're born that way, therefore you can only celebrate that. As opposed to another question about desire, sexual desire and, and whatnot, and identity. And so I'd like to propose that there are two concepts at work here. One is predisposed, someone who's predisposed, and one who is predetermined. So God predetermined me to have brown hazel eyes, right? God predetermined me to be very good looking, right? Why do they laugh each time? They, God predetermined me to, to be a certain height, things that cannot change. Even the serenity prayer says the very thing. God grant me the ability, the wisdom to know the difference between these things. And, and yet there are, an, there's another aspect of this that we could be predisposed to something at birth. So this is important to kind of wrestle through this and say, well, what am I predisposed to? An example of something that someone is predisposed to would be something like alcoholism. Okay, we know that if there is alcoholism within our family lineage, right, that if I were to pick up a bottle of alcohol, I would be more susceptible to becoming an alcoholic because of a genetic biological makeup. Is that true? Right. Am I predetermined to be an alcoholic? No, not predetermined. What is required for me to become an alcoholic? Alcohol, <laughs> exactly, to drink. 
Now, except for the you know, fetal alcohol syndrome, and that's a different story, obviously, but I'm talking about someone who has a vulnerability, a physiological vulnerability to these things. And even depression can be the same thing. I'm susceptible to depression because my dad, my grandpa, and great-grandpa have all deal with this, so I need to be extra careful here. If my family has this thing with alcohol, you know what, I probably shouldn't touch this stuff. I don't know where you stand theologically on alcohol, but if, if there isn't a problem and you don't see a problem, then you're probably not susceptible to becoming an alcoholic. Now, the, the thing is that we can actually make changes with our vulnerability. So, for instance, if I was a guy who um, was in the, uh, the Olympics and I was winning the gold medal, typically speaking, except for the cur is it curdling? Is that the, the sport? Curling, except for that, you can be overweight and do that one, no problem. But outside of that sport, well, how does my body generally look? Fit, yeah, fit. I've been practicing, I've been working out, I've been training and training, and so then I go and win the gold medal. I, I look a certain way. If that exact same person from early on decided to just sit on the couch, eat Doritos, and watch soaps and play video games their whole life, how would their body look? Probably not like that. More like, well, I used to look. <laughs> so, so obviously our behavior, our choices, impact how our, our uh, future is going to look, even though at the beginning there is the same biological component already. So let's at least set that kind of aside, going, wait a minute, there might be some vulnerabilities here, but not predetermined. No one is predetermined to be gay because there is no, no gays, gay uh, identified gene. In fact, there are some studies done here. I'll just briefly go through these. The brain study was done in 1991 by Dr. Simon LeBay. What he did was he examined 41 cadavers. 90, uh, 19 of them were allegedly homosexual, 16 heterosexual, and then six heterosexual women. What he studied was the hypothalamic nucleus, and he found that it was larger in heterosexuals than in women and gay men. So there was a physiological difference and he was published in a scientific ma uh, magazine. But the problem was there's insignificant findings. And the question is, did, does brain structure actually change based on life choices? And the answer to that is yes, as we just said. If we exercise a certain part of our brain, it will change over others. The other thing is it was undetermined whether or not truly they were heterosexual. They were using HIV patients, and that doesn't prove they're, they're gay, or, uh, gay. They could be heterosexual and get HIV. And Simon LeVay himself was a homosexual and potentially had, a, had an agenda. Uh, years later, he actually said that study wasn't to try to prove homosexual uh, inborn, just to bring out this attention. There's another study done by the, with twins, several studies actually. One said that 52% of those who were homosexual when it's identical, so an identical bro boy, 52% of the time the brother's gonna be gay. So what's the problem with this as a significant finding? Identical, meaning 100%, the reality is 48% were not, and so you have to ask another question beyond bi biology. It's high, and so you wonder also if it's, more, if it's more prevalent, there must be something else going on. And I would suggest that twins receive and have senses and connect very similar ways. We hear this all the time about they like the same thing, they receive the same thing. And so environment is going to impact them in a similar way, but not a 100% identical way. There's another study done at the gene theory. Dr. Hammer in 1993 claimed to have found the X chromosome but they've not been able to duplicate this study, and of course you need to in order for it to be scientific fa fact. So suffice it to say that there is no conclusive evidence that biology or biological factors alone contribute to homosexuality or any other issues along those lines. Uh, no studies finally done. Now this is the problem is people think there's conclusive studies, but there just simply isn't. And I would also then go to say that even if one finds a biological link to this uh, life, this struggle or identity, that it still doesn't determine who we are because as I said earlier, I, our identity doesn't come from our biology or our sin nature, but by God, correct? And so we have to, we have to say, sure, there might be something, although there isn't anything at this point, and yet there's more evidence in the relational uh, developmental component as we are gonna uncover. 
so I would say that, that also that if anyone suggests that they know the cause of homosexuality, that, that I would be highly suspect, including myself. If I were to say this is it, this is the issue at hand, and the reason being is because humans are so complex. We're so complex. We can't narrow something down to, to one gene or one issue, um, but that there are several, there are so, several factors that, that play into de our development and who we are today. So in rather than thinking the nurture versus nature argument, which is kind of this idea, like I said, nature versus nurture, I like the word uh, via, via, to kind of play it together. The, because the reality is we do, as believers, understand that, that we live in a fallen world, that we have a fallen nature, and that we have to deal with the reality of sin. We're all born in sin. We're all, and just to sum up this huge theological conversation, is that we're all born, if you will, with a God-shaped hole and need to, to come back to the creator. We have to worship something. God created us to do so. And if we're not worshiping the created creator, we're going to worship the created, Romans 1. We've got to serve someone, as they say. And so uh, we are always, every single one of us in this room, everyone who's struggling with anything is on a constant pursuit to repair something. That's what we're doing. And that's why the term reparative therapy was coined, which again has its own baggage. But in the, in the end, we all are in that pursuit to repair. The question is, are you going to repair it rightly or are you going to repair it incorrectly, wrongly, artificially, ways that destroy you? And as I say, the enemy is the opportunist and he will exploit the very things that he knows you're vulnerable with and in our temperament and our weaknesses. And so here's a young boy who's given the temperament of a sensitive young man, God-given, no sin in that whatsoever. That's not a fallen nature thing. God gives us different personalities. And I've got a, a temperament that is set up for Satan to exploit, set up for a vulnerability for, um, for the enemy and for my own, own flesh nature to pursue things that fill a void, that fill in the gap, but in the end leave me hurting and in pain. So with this in mind, recognizing that biology isn't it, we're going to look at the relational aspects of homosexuality and, and uncover this. Again, I believe this is important because, and I'm going to just highlight this, if we are, have a question about how do I reach my lesbian neighbor or gay neighbor or gay coworker, which is a legitimate question that so many people ask, think in terms of what we're talking about in this hour. This will help you know how to relate and understand and, and help those who are, who are openly gay, lesbian, bisexual. So what we need to do is look at God's intended design for family, for the tri triadic, if you will, relationship or the nucleus family. This reveals so much about children and development. And the reality is God has revealed knowledge through, the, through creation and through uh, one another and watching them, as I mentioned earlier. So both the father and the mother fill a very special role for a, a developing child. God has given us amazing insights on how children develop as they, as they grow through these stages. Wisdom, observation, insight, they reveal both positive and negative outcomes depending on the child's uh, accomplishments of those stages. So what's the first stage that a baby, zero to about 18 months, needs to accomplish? Well, some have put out, and I agree with this, again, general revelation and observation says they are developing trust. That's the number one thing. Is, is my world trustworthy? Will I be changed? When I cry to be fed, would I be, will I get the bottle? What, uh, will I have a consistent uh, schedule? And if a, if a healthy parent is growing this child, he's, that parent is going to give that safe environment to grow into, right? That's absolutely ne necessary. The child needs consistency, safety, and boundaries. When I had my first kid, I got a book from someone that was called The Happiest Baby on the Block. And I'm like, great, I'm, I'm reading this one. And sure enough, there were some great things in there, things like burrito wrap is what you call where you tight the, the, the blanket really tight so that it can't even move. And I feel like it's, it's like torture, but babies love it because it's secure. And, and allowing them to just be able to feel at peace and, and grow. And, and 
I think it's absolutely necessary. Or do we, if we knew that right now we were all in harm's way, that there was going to be people coming through the door with ill intent on this roof, would you be listening and growing and hearing from the Lord what I'm saying? No, you would be constantly prepared for the attack. You're constantly on defense. You're ready. You're looking around. You're not paying attention. How much more so for a child that's not having a safe environment to grow into, to develop relationally and, and connecting with one another? So it absolutely is essential that we give that opportunity to grow with safety and security. So the mother, so here's the boy finding in an ideal world this connection. Mom and dad are connected to one another. The boy makes the connection to both. The father plays an essential role in the develop of this man, with the young man. I've heard it say, and I like this phrase, mothers make boys, fathers make men. In the sense of mothers have an important, valuable role, man calls forth this boy. In infancy, both boys and girls are emotionally attached to the mother, uh, but the girls continue to develop that identification with the same, with the woman. But a boy has an additional task to accomplish, and that is to disidentify with mom and identify with father or the community of men. This happens about uh, around the 18 months realm. This little boy begins to ask another intrinsic question, who am I going to become? Who am I like? And the Freudian, or the, uh, the uh, um, Oedipus complex plays this Greek story about the guy who ends up murdering his, his dad and marrying his mom and it's a tragedy of sorts, but there's a sense of an element that happens in this development of connecting with mom. And, and so a dad's job at this point is to call forth the boy and into the world of masculinity. He must do his part. He must mirror and affirm his son's maleness. He will interact with his son in different ways than he would a daughter. If you have children and, and both genders, you'll probably understand this. When my boy was growing up, I mean, a child, I would grab him and throw him as high as I can up in the air, this close from the ceiling fan. <laughs> He's giggling and laughing. I'm having a good time. My wife is doing what? <laughs> right. And again, it, much of this is generalized. There are some men that would do that and women. But generally speaking, this is what's going on. I'm going to nickname my, my kid aggressive names, little tiger, my little man. I'm going to wrestle with him on the floor. My wife doesn't do that. My wife's getting the band-aids out, right? Showing affection. The son will begin to then mimic the father. He may be even put on his shoes. I remember one time walking around the block with my now older son, and he was walking a bit ahead of me. I was kind of keeping an eye on him. And I was walking backwards with my hands in my pocket. He looks at me, and he sees that how I'm walking, and he goes and he finds his pocket, and he puts his hands in there, and he turns around and walks just like me, walking backwards. And it was such a precious moment of my son wanting to be like me, mimicking me, if you will. Children need the blessing and the affirmation of the Father. We all need it. Every one of us needs it in this, in this room. And you know what? Even Jesus got it. We see this example in Luke chapter 3 when Jesus is being baptized. And God the Father, his Father, says what? This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. How many of you want that from your own personal father? How many of you got that from your own personal father? Yeah, a few of you. That's a, that's a, it's a privilege to be able to get a blessing from the father and to be encouraged in that. Um, here's a... So here's the issue here at hand is that um, many fathers do love their sons, uh, but there is a major disconnect in relationship. And, and fathers can be not the, the, the primary point here. The community of men could be an aspect of this as well. Temper, temperament uh, differences can create a negative or an, an adequate role model. So basically the mind is dad is not who I want to be or who I feel safe with, both in, both in reality and perception. So a boy needs to see his father as confident, self-assured, and decisive, not perfection, but one that allows this place of safety and, and growth. The reality, though, is that some fathers, many fathers, find ways to get involved 
in almost anything but their children for various reasons. My dad was abused by his stepdad. He was reminded growing up that he wasn't really a Thompson. They had other stepbrothers. He was kicked across the room and rejected by him and had lots of emotional wounds because of it. When he married my mom, he kind of made an agreement because my mom really wanted to have kids. My dad did not want to have kids. He basically says, you raise them if you want to have kids. He remembers having this in his heart. And I felt that for sure. So this dad, who I felt a disconnect with, years later, sitting down having dinner, talking about the depths of our lives, realized that he loved me, but he stayed his distance relationally from me because he did not want to hurt me like his stepdad hurt him. Hurt him. It made a tremendous amount of sense. Lots of forgiveness, lots of healing. It doesn't replace the years of neglect, but it brought understanding through the thing. And so we have to see, um, even, even those who do get it, so I do this for a living, I've had opportunities to learn counseling, I get what a kid needs, and even I, so many times, have, have just missed the mark on this. It's so easy to do. There's a, there was a time just a while back where I'm like sitting at the computer, looking at Google this, news that, who cares, just wasting time, and my son wants to play, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, yeah, go away, I'm just needing my own time. And he, uh, the Lord gently reminded me of this need when my son Trevor climbed over my shoulder and began to sing, Jesus loves the little children. <laughs> and it's like, okay, God, I got it, God, I'll shut it off, turn it off, and jump on the, and jump on the, the floor and play, which, which was such a great reminder and such a good thing, as I say, they grow up so fast, but he needed that attention. And that's not to say there's moments where it's okay have your time and have your time. But in that moment, I needed to spend time with him. The reality is that participants who come to Portland Fellowship, um, not, it's not 100% every time, but so many times this is what happens. That, parent, that when a dad comes home, it's not running to the father for a hug and a welcome home. It's actually avoiding him, running to the backyard, shutting the bedroom door, and pretending he's not home, the boy, so that he doesn't have to put up with whatever the father might be bringing him. We have a retreat at the, at the ministry where we go away and, and offer something to surrender that's been hold, they've been holding on to, to their life. This one guy a few years back just really touched my heart. His name was Dale. And Dale experienced great rejection and pain from his abusive father. His scars run really deep uh, and have resulted in dysfunctional relating his entire life and the use of gay pornography, believing in his heart that he had no value and worth. So what happened was one night, um, at a special dinner, he's, he remembers uh, act, actually uh, spilling some gravy uh, all over himself. And, and in this painful moment, um, his dad just grabbed him from the table and took him up and gave him a beating for that accident. And uh, oh, it's just sad to even remember. And then he, when he got back to the table, he specifically remembers a man at the table. He didn't identify who a family member who showed him compassion who then very shortly after exploited that and sexually molested him. Um, so painful things that have happened in life that shape uh, a person's life. At that retreat, it was powerful. He brought a can of gravy, surrendered it. It's like, oof, I'm done with it. And the stories continued in our application process for our, for our program. We asked people just to simply identify their relationship with their father and their mother in just about this much space, not very much. And almost every guy who writes it writes about father. It was non-existent uh, most of my childhood. He was often out to sea in the Navy. Mom was solid, godly woman and carried many of her traits. Another guy writes, he never gave me praise for doing good and always put my brothers first, always stuck by my, her side. Kind of grew up as a mama's boy. About dad, another person writes, he is angry, verbally, emotionally abusive. Another one writes, up and down, we really don't have a relationship I desire. My mom's my best friend. So there's a connection with mom, a safety there, but dad's mysterious and unknown and abusive. Now, just for a moment, it can really sound like a dad bashing talk, for sure. And I know there are parents in this room who might have gay, lesbian, bisexual children. And the reality of this is that we have to own our, our, our uh, failings, for sure. But in the end, 
this is about one's own individual choices about how they did it. If you've abused and neglected intentionally or you know the harm, it is time to reconcile. It is time to walk in humility, to, to ask for forgiveness and not hold that over yourself. But some people are doing a great job raising. My dad loved me. This was not a, a, a deep moment of wounding that he did for me. And there were perceptions that were going on in my mind and my heart. My, my older brother is just 11 months older than me, very different than me in ter temperament and personality. And if I could set the stage that I was out, our room was dirty and my dad comes in the room and says, you guys, this room is a pigsty, get it clean before you can go out and play. Well, my brother's thinking, darn it, I wanted to go out and play right now, I gotta get this stupid room clean. The, my response is, I can never measure up to him. I can never please him. Two different responses, two internal ways of processing it. Same dad, just telling the kids to clean the room. And, re and the reality is we've got to take personal responsibility for our perceptions and our understanding. The ultimate example, too, in this is that Adam and Eve had the most perfect father, <laughs> spent the day with him, and they chose to be disobedient and walk away and to sin. So even if this is just not about a father's relationship, a disconnect, there are other issues that Kathy Grace will mention briefly here in a bit about abuse and neglect and perception and vows. But we have to recognize all this comes back to relational issues that needs, again, relational solutions. So now the boy is is, has confusion and is about relating and insecure and not knowing how to fit in. And he's in puberty land, or before puberty, eight years old. And, um, and, and the, you, you know, you're welcome to this world of puberty where, where things are changing in your body and you're trying to connect, unable to connect with the same sex, and labels start happening. You know, gay, sissy, queer, fag, homo. The disconnect of personality plays into this part. So if I'm into dance and I want to do dance lessons, and my dad's like, I don't get dance. Mom, you take kid to dance. Is dance or the temperament of being sensitive something that makes a person gay? No. The problem at hand is the disconnect of the person that says, I don't know how to relate to that. And so I would encourage anybody, if you have kids that are into something that you don't identify with that may be more on the per sensitive side of things, go to their lessons, cheer them on, and then go out and have ice cream afterwards and talk one-on-one -on -one with your hearts. That's the issue at hand here. And so we need to, we need to recognize that if, if it's missing, there's going to be a hunger for it. There's going to be a, a need to connect, that to repair and to receive those things. So there's this idea of recessed development. We, we know the show Arrested Development. Anybody know that show? It's like a bunch of crazies, right, that are not quite grown up. Recessed development is, is, is another picture of this. If you're in the relational classroom of development, the spiritual classroom of development, you're growing in right relationship with God and with others, you're going to be growing through it. You take the test and you pass and you move to the next grade. Well, what happens if you're in, if you're in that same kind of classroom environment and you're out on the playground, which is what? A break from study, right? A fun, fun break from study. But at that point, in an illustrated type of way, you don't go back to the classroom. You stay on the playground. Either you're not invited back, you're rejected, or you feel like you don't need it, whatever, all sorts of reasons. But there's this lack of connecting back in that relational development. And so people, they get stuck in that stage. If you paint a picture of uh, a child, let's do that real quick, an eight-year-old approximately, whatnot, when you think and talk to that boy, you ask, and, and I've got a 10-year-old home, I even asked him at 10, do you like girls? And that boy, 8 to 10, would say what? No. And if you say you want to kiss a girl, yuck, she has cooties. Would you assume at that point that boy is gay? Well, of course he is. He doesn't like girls. That's, that's exaggeration. We, for a second, not even the world would say otherwise, because something has to happen. There has to be a connection with the same gender. God designed it that way. It has to happen, a connection with the same, so that we can continue to grow. We know who we are so that we can figure out the opposite sex. Can we give an amen from every man in this room? <laughs> because the other is different. 
And so if that doesn't happen, or let's say we'll go through it and it does happen. So he, he grows up, he connects, and he feels connected with boys. And now they're all, we all have the same pieces. We have a penis, you have a penis, big deal, whatever. We think a lot alike, not interested in that. And now this girl comes in, she's different. She's built differently, she looks differently, she acts differently. And the exotic, something that's different, becomes an attraction and desire, right? Isn't that how it works? It's like, she's not like us. Woo, she's pretty. I want that. Conquer that. Merge with that, et cetera, et cetera, onto marriage. So that's natural, God's intention and design. At that, let's back up the, the tape. At eight years old, you're now back at that, that um, stage where girls are icky. One more illustration. You have a clubhouse at eight years old, and the sign on the door says what? that disconnect we were talking about, and then there's the treehouse, right? No girls allowed, normal and natural. If that doesn't get achieved, if there isn't the connection, to be able to connect with um, the same sex in healthy ways, then um, one would continue to hunger for it, right? So as was said about the, the, the water, if I'm thirsty, I need it, no need goes unfilled. It has to be met rightly or wrongly. So if I have a need to connect with the same, I am going to, um, I'm, I'm going to continue to look for it and hunger for it. Even years later, as I'm walking through my own healing and transformation in my life and really got a good footing, I, I actually kind of resorted and had a re moment of recess development, if you will. When I went on a trip with my wife to Europe, we went backpacking around Europe. And it was just her and I for the longest time. And, and, uh, and one thing, well, first is that I realized, you know, when you're around a bunch of people that don't speak English, it's hard, isn't it? Anybody go backpacking, go, go into a foreign country? It's, it, it can be a, a, quite a challenge. And as backpackers at a younger age, we, uh, when you run into someone who is either Canadian, Australian, British, or United, uh, United States, American, um, you connect rather quickly, and actually they become one of your best friends. <laughs> Why is that? Yeah, oh my, it's so hard to try to understand where the bathroom is and where to go with, with people who don't speak English. And then you finally get into a group, it's like, okay, I get you, I got it, we can relax, and now we're really connected. This is like the men are from Mars, women are from Venus type of thing, right? And so there's this sense of I can rest, I can breathe a little, and it's like what I said before about if your life was in danger right now, how can you grow? So this eight-year-old boy, the proverbial clubhouse experience, if you will, the recess development is saying, come on back in the classroom. Let's have this opportunity for a clubhouse. The, the person who struggles with same-sex attraction would report in different ways. They didn't have this clubhouse. They didn't have it. The point of connection, the point of interaction many times were with women. I, I connected with my mom and, and found that it was easier to just relate to her and connect with her. And I didn't know how to talk to dad. When I was uh, then a little bit older, before I even learned about Portland Fellowship in high school, I'm, I'm watching my peers want to go out and play a game of hoops. And I'm like, I don't know how to play and I'm just going to embarrass myself. So I'm going to leave this situation and run. I'm going to get out of here. And so each time I did that, whether it's in my heart or literally leaving, it's leaving still this big hole to try to connect and relate the way God intended for me to relate. And so it truly is about peer relating. I need to be able to relate well. 
So here's the, and then now this one's not going. as I kind of conclude this part and Kathy Grace will share a bit, is that there is the insecurity when I was being called out to go play basketball or go hang out and watch a football game, I, I didn't know how to relate uh, with that, that peer group. And so, again, I would avoid, I would escape it. What did I need more than anything at this, at this moment? I need relational and I felt insecure and didn't feel like I had the tools or the opportunity to even know how to do it, what then was the best thing that, was, that would have been good for me at that time? An older brother to show me how, a dad to step in, to observe, to watch. What an incredible opportunity for us as the body of Christ, not to be anyone's savior or to fix anyone's sexuality, but if we can recognize that if a boy is struggling with his gender, if a man is struggling or has a desire for another man to complete something within, I would even venture to say, and I've been there, I've been in gay bars. A gay bar, in my opinion, is a big old massive clubhouse with a no girl sign on it. The problem with this is these are boys, now men, but actually in a sense recessed in development seeking to find the very thing they need from someone who, what? Doesn't have it either. Now, in normal developing, as children, you get it together, you grow together, experience this together. But in the brokenness of, if you will, a gay club, it's this desperate attempt. And then how it is attempted to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way is through sex, through flirting, through flesh and carnal activity through drinking. I don't think there's a whole lot of deep soul searching, understanding wounds and pains and healing process happening in the gay bar. If it were, maybe there'd be a lot of healing in there, but, but because they're missing it and they seek it. So when I see gay men in a gay bar or in a gay pride parade or anything else for that matter, I don't have a wagging finger. I have an understanding. I have an understanding that there's a legitimate need that these individuals have, that they're seeking to find it in illegitimate ways. And as people have said before, I don't care what the issue is, the people addicted to that gambling machine in the casino can walk through there, look at them and go, you're not just a gambling addict, although yeah, that's where the symptom has led you, but you are so starving for relationship and this has become your escape to fill the void instead of meet the deepest needs you have with God and with others. We can claim that with any vice, any sin nature. And that is really when it comes down to is why is it sin? Why is homosexuality sin? Because God said so, as, as Matt said, it's like, no, that's not a good enough answer. Yeah, he did say so. There's bumper stickers that say it. Yeah, got it. But why? Because we have a good father who wants to grow us up and mature us in him so that we lack nothing, the Bible says. And in order to do that, anything outside of his plan and his way will only wound us, it will only cripple us. It will only give us a place of just isolation, isolation and shame. And then the only response we're gonna do to that is fill the void, either run from it or medicate ourselves with something that makes it just deaden it a little bit. Again, drugs, alcohol, gambling, shopping, chocolate, for some cutting themselves to deaden the pain, the emotional, internal pain. And Jesus says, come to me, let me heal these things. Identifying with the opposite sex, guys may feel more comfortable with women. Women who, who, who struggle embracing their femininity will find it easier to be with guys. In other words, if guys who struggle with this do find women that enjoy hanging out with gay men, there's a deeper question to ask for these women. Why is it safer to be with a gay man instead of calling that person forth in their masculinity? And of course, as I mentioned before, the, the labeling of being a queer, sissy, faggot, those kind of things. It's the lack of role model, it's that reinforcement of an identity that's a lie that then forms that disconnect. It causes the hunger and needs to find a solution for it. So the question before Kathy Grace comes up here is, 
do you want to be the solution for that? Be part of the solution. Ambassadors for Christ, because A, I know you're all broken in your own right, every single one of you, in one way or another, and, and Satan knows it, and he's tried to take you to town on it, and God is refining you as well. But when it comes to coming alongside those who have not stepped those, through that process of, of, of growing in their masculinity or femininity, and again, that, those words, this conversation is an offense to the gay community. I get it. I 100% get it. But it's the truth. They're seeking to find. I was seeking to find. And now it's the process of restoring that, healing that, that we become ambassadors for. So again, Captain Grace is going to come up and share from women's perspective and, and highlight a few additional items on this. So come on. why we need men, right, sort of. <laughs> but it's about time for a women's perspective, right? So some of what I'm going to cover, will, Jason has already touched on, and also mine is kind of a broad stroke and the basics. Because some of these things, you know, we could talk for hours on, if not days, okay? Um, so I'm going to paint two situations, okay? Two family now there could be much more that's going on in there but we have for women we have the ideal family okay and what that looks like is that mom is a healthy role model for her daughter she is revealing what it looks like to be a woman interactions with mom like the nurturing and affection being cared for reveals what that is to be a mom so like little girl runs in she's you know got skinned her knee and the mom's like oh sweetheart what happened to you oh let's get that cleaned up let's get a band-aid on there that's that affection being cared for taking care of your daughter also in the role model of the mom she can display what the relationship with a man looks like she's protected she's being provided for and she also displays that being a helpmate with the husband that's the ideal situation with the mom Fathers, as Jason has mentioned, they, play, um, they also play a very powerful role. They, as dads, need to pay attention to their daughter. They acknowledge her success, and they help her to succeed. They also acknowledge her beauty. And, you know, growing up, I never heard that. You're pretty. You're my girl. Gosh, look at you. You look wonderful. Dance for me. Never heard that. Um, fathers also provide that powerful example as, as far as how to relate to the opposite sex. They show that he values mom. And he does that by his deeds and by his words. Compliments her. Thank you for dinner. That was awesome. He appreciates her. And he also is very respectful towards her. So the daughter looks at that and goes, wow, this is what I should be able to expect from a husband. Okay? And this is what it looks like to be a woman. So, you know, Jason talked about as far as the, the mom, was that the mom makes the boy, but the dad, whatever, throws a man, yeah, that part. But <laughs> so from my perspective of it is that mom nurtures up that inner character. And it's the dad that calls the child out into who they are. It's just another view of it. Now we have the other situation, it's called the not so ideal situation. So mom is abused by husband, verbally, emotionally, physically, um, or mom is unavailable. She's not able to uh, nurture her daughter. So the daughter comes in with that skin knee and she's like, seriously, you skinned your knee again? Go get a Band-Aid. That's not very nurturing. Um, Maybe mom's checked out. Maybe mom has had her own issues that she's trying to work through. She's had trauma prior to this, and she's trying to figure out how to get through that. 
or maybe the mom just doesn't know how to be a mom. She didn't have that example. Her mom wasn't an example. Her grandma wasn't an example, and so on and so on. No one was the example for the woman that came down, and she's like, I don't, I don't even know how to be a mom. I, I know that I love you, but I don't know how to show that. I don't know how to take care of you. She just kind of shows up for the job. Is this making sense? Okay. So we look at that. Now, I've seen kids come out of that ideal family, and they're, the kids are really great. You know, they didn't have abuse. They didn't view abuse. You know, dad spoke into that. Mom nurtured that up. They're really great kids. So what happens, though, when we have that ideal family, that ideal situation, and the not-so-ideal situation, it's interesting because even out of the ideal situation, we will have women who are lesbians who struggle with same-sex attraction, SSA. So what happens? Well, in either case, ideal or not so ideal, it could have been that there wasn't that intimate, trusting relationship built with mom. You know, mom, even though she's nurturing, maybe she wasn't nurturing right at that moment. The daughter comes in, has got that skinny, and she's like, sweetheart, can you wait just a minute? i got to do this over here, and then I'll get back to you. Okay, so in her mind, wow, you, I don't know what to do with that. You just rejected me. So if there's that relationship that's broken, what happens is, see, moms usually give that sense of being. And out of that sense of being, that child has that sense of belonging. And it builds that confidence in who she is. And so if there's that lack of nurturing, like I just mentioned, you know, I'll be with you just in a second. It could give that feeling of rejection and emotional abandonment. Now there's real rejection. Go get your Band-Aid. Good grief, look at your knee. You know, that's real rejection. And then there's perceived rejection. Sweetheart, I'll be with you in a moment. The mom didn't reject her. She just said, I'll be back later. So that could be perceived rejection. So there's real and there's perceived. Now again, you know, moms, if, if you're struggling with this, as Jason said, sometimes there are things that you need to own up to, and other times it's just the child's perception and temperament. So girls, women, they'll look for that sense of being in other women. They'll look for that emotional abandonment to be, meet, to be met and for the nurturing. And they do this because women are those things. We're wired that way. You know, one of the things that um, the Lord really showed me is when I came out of the lifestyle, one, one of the pastors told me, when I looked at you, I always thought you'd be a really great woman because you were so nurturing. And I realized that even living as a man, I could not stop how I was wired on the inside. I couldn't stop being a woman, even though I looked like a man. So... They go, to, they go to the women to have those things met, and also because they're not a man. Men have become unsafe. So since they have this idea that men can't be trusted, then women have to be trustworthy, and I'm going to get my emotional needs met for you. Um, also, there could have been, even in the ideal situation, there could have been abuse that just wasn't talked about. Maybe it only happened one or two times, but the daughter never said anything. She just figured out how to deal with it and move past it. Um, you know, one of the things, and I think this is true for everybody, is we look in others for what we lack. And I know that that's true for women that struggle with SSA. That's why they go to women, because they're looking for those things that they didn't get from their mom. And they weren't affirmed by their dad as far as being beautiful as far as being acceptable as a woman. Now, women that struggle with transgender like myself, I would say most of those things that I just described are true. And there's more. The difference between me and someone who struggles with um, SSA is that there's deep self-hatred. Deep self-hatred. Now, I'm not saying that the, the woman who struggles with SSA doesn't have self-hatred. But it seems like those with transgender, it just there's that all-inclusive self-hatred. Self and um, when women, um, women who struggle with SSA too, they, they actually reject their natural 
sexual orientation, mean, meaning instead of being attracted to men, they're attracted to women. With transgender people, they reject their entire sexual identity. Everything about me needed to be changed because it was too vulnerable to be identified as a woman. Does this make sense? Okay. So, for the most part, women struggling with SSA, to some degree, um, if they are able, for the most part, women struggling with SSA can, to some degree, uh, be able to identify as being a woman. They're okay with staying a woman. Okay, they're just, they just don't want to be with a man. And a person who struggles with their sexual identity cannot. Now, I, I tried dating, you know, when I was living as a girl. I hated it because he knew I was a girl. <laughs> Not that I wanted to date a man as a man, but it was, it was awful being identified as a woman. Um, I hated everything about myself. The only way for a transgender person to be safe is not to be that gender. Since they believe that nothing is good, since I believed nothing was good about them, or that I was marred beyond compare or repair, it is hard for the transgender person to trust or believe anybody, because everybody's out here. <laughs> I didn't trust anybody. It, you had to work really hard to be my friend. And then even so, I didn't share anything about me. And because the self-hatred runs so deep, that anticipation and the expectation is to always be rejected or hated. That's what I expected from people. Okay. Peer relating. So um, what I'm finding is if the woman comes from the ideal situation, then peer relating is much easier. Because in the ideal situation, they, they seem to have gotten a little more nurture from their mom. There's something about that relationship that maybe was impacted and that whole intimate relationship wasn't fully developed, but they were able to get some nurturing. So there was something about that sense of being that they were able to get. And so their peer relating becomes much easier and they want to learn about that feminine stuff because there are lesbians out there that you wouldn't know they're a lesbian because they are very feminine. Because we have that stereotypical that they're all, you know, leather jackets, short hair, tough, you know, look like a man type of thing. But that's not true. There are women out there who are very feminine that I found out <laughs> one time there was this woman who was a lesbian. I was like, what? But you're so feminine. So they find it easier, those who come from the ideal situation, to want to embrace that stuff because there's something about their identity that they're okay with as far as the femininity. They just don't want to be with a man. Then, um, so then the women who come from the not so ideal situation, we can understand why they wouldn't want to embrace the feminine parts. Um, they, the peer relating doesn't happen because it's way too vulnerable and unsafe. Um, the, their peer groups have either already begun to isolate them, you know, kind of put them in their own little group, or they've begun to isolate themselves, realizing, I don't fit in there, you are too feminine, I'm gonna do this over here, either by myself or I'm gonna find others that I can relate with. Um, and what happens too is that they, they like hanging out with the guys because they wanna be like them. They wanna learn how to be tough. And they, you know, they'd rather be tough for protection. See, because femininity is, means to, we're, we're supposed to draw in. True femininity means to invite, to draw in. And the women who come from the not so ideal situation are like, I am not inviting you in any past this and you're lucky if you get this far, okay? Um, they don't want that because everything has said men are unsafe. I don't want to invite you in here, so I'm going to put on this tough exterior for my protection because you're going to stay over there. Um, but also, if we look at that woman who is very tough in exterior, maybe rides a Harley or whatever, um, if we look at that, we can also see that that is their wounding. What they're wearing on the outside for their protection is saying that they're deeply wounded on the inside, and that's what they're protecting. 
is that deep woundedness from within. But they don't want you to get too close to see that because you're going to hurt them again. So identifying with the opposite sex, women who are considered tomboys will hang out with boys to be like them. They want to be tough. Now, I'm not saying that all tomboys are going to grow up to be lesbians or they're going to be transgender. Because some tomboys just want to be tomboys, and when they get to puberty, they're like, oh, I like being a girl. I'm going to be a girl. And they move on. Uh, for me, I was always a tomboy from like about three till, you know, I don't know, 20 when I, when I began to live as a man. But women who are able to embrace their femininity, even just a li little, might be willing to try the opposite sex. Because there's just enough that they embrace about their femininity to go, I'm kind of curious about that. You know, I, I don't know. Because in their peer relating, their peers are doing that because they're doing the healthy thing. So they're like, mm, what if I try this? Maybe I'll try this. And in trying it, they either go, hmm, nope, not for me. Or they call themselves bisexual because there's, there's enough of them to go, I kind of like men, but I also like women over here because they meet me you know, emotionally and they make me feel like a woman. So they don't know how to draw that line and go, I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that. They, they allow those lines to be blurred. Women who have rejected their sexual orientation will not even consider the opposite sex. That's like the whole cooties thing. Even if they're 40 and they're like, you still got cooties, I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and typically, women who are in the lifestyle have been sexually abused by men. So men are viewed as not safe. And, you know, sometimes the fathers abuse their daughters. It's uncles, brothers, my brother. Um, co-workers, peers, you know, all these men that they have been in contact with somehow has um, abused them. And so they don't, they just don't want to be like that. And also, you know, they've watched their dad um, objectify women. And so they don't want to be objectified. You know, the dad looks at that woman and he goes, oh, look at that, oh, look at that, oh, look at that, you know. Um, Maybe the daughter has a, um, a friend come home, and the, and the dad's like, hey, your friend Caitlin looks pretty good, you know? Okay, your friend Caitlin is 11. And the dad's like, Caitlin's pretty. I really like that dress. So the daughter doesn't bring Caitlin home anymore because she sees this unhealthiness in her dad, and it's just become unsafe. Now, what I've described is there's actually really kind of three main roots that I've talked about that are interwoven in there, and it's usually rejection, abandonment, and abuse. Um, and from those three rejections, they are able to manifest all these different things. And so it's looking at each one of those and address, was that rejection, was that abandonment, is that abuse, and figuring out how to navigate that to come alongside them. Coping mechanisms, defensive detachment. Now, out of curiosity, I ask Google, okay, Google, what is the definition of de defensive detachment? And Google said, it's a form of protection when children who desperately long for connection with same-sex parent grow up to suspect that the relationship will only bring greater rejection. And I would say yes, and it goes much deeper than that. So I had severe defensive detachment, and it is exactly that. And it's a coping mechanism. You cut off from everything because everything is going to hurt you, is your perception. I don't want to deal with these emotional pain, and I don't want to deal with how you're going to hurt me. And the only emotion I ever really lived in was pain. And so I did those things to, to keep from that pain happening over and over and over. And I couldn't, when I came to the Portland Fellowship, I couldn't identify if I was happy, sad, because I pretty much was just existing. And so we detach from all those emotions. And in some cases, it's, it's helpful. It, it's to get you through that season. And then you do have to, you do have to um, attach. Um, and then there's vows. Now, vows, they do keep children stuck in their behavior. It also keeps them 
trying to fulfill that vow. Um, and vows start like with, I will never or I will always. Now, if you have a vow, um, I found, I made a vow, um, I will never be weak. So I worked really hard at fulfilling that vow. I went to the gym, I pumped iron, you know, I was constantly looking at how I could keep myself safe. How could I keep myself strong? I also made a vow, I will never be like my dad. And what happened? <laughs> in one of the relationships I was in, I woke up and went, oh, oops, I'm my dad. The other thing is too, is the very things that we hate are the very things we become. Um, and there, I also made a vow is that I will always be replaced. Now, looking at that, that's not a helpful vow. I, I, will, I will never be weak or I'll never be like my dad or I'll always be strong. Those are ones that are you know, in that realm of defensive detachment. However, I will always be replaced is another vow. And it, it, it helped me to cope and it almost, it was destroying me at the same time because what that did is um, that vow kept me in a place of fear in relationships. It also uh, kept me in fear of doing my work and ministry. I would work extra hard because I didn't want to re be replaced. I would go that extra mile to prove to you I was worthy. I was valuable to you. So if I continued to work really hard and do these extra things, you would see I had value. So I believed I had to work for my value to keep from being replaced. It was exhausting. Now, even though those defenses help a child to work through, different, through a difficult time, it does become a problem. And um, after lunch, Jason is going to talk about how we're, gonna, how we're able to lay down our defenses, what that looks like, and then reconnecting to that source. Thank you. We are this close to eating for lunch. I'm going to pray um, that God would bless our lunchtime. But I, was, I just wanted to say I'm sitting over there thinking how much I don't know about what's going on um, and how I can be a part of that. And I'm thinking about mission trips and the amount of time that we invest in learning different cultures to connect with unreached people groups who are wherever we're going as Christians around the world to try to preach the gospel and how much time we spend in learning the culture and learning um, how to, to, to go there and, and make a difference. And I'm sitting here wondering how much I don't know about a community of folks who are hurting right here, right here. Uh, whether it's in the church and they just are too, it's too risky to say anything around here or whether it's in my, my community where I live or where I work. And I'm just convicted in, in some ways of how much more I want to understand so that I can be a part of the solution. And I'm hoping that some of you or all of you are having similar convictions. And there's going to be a point in today where I'm going to personally ask if there's somebody here um, that wants to take this to the next level and work with me and my team so that Golden Hills could be a place that would get some professional training and some the things that Jason and Kathy Grace and Portman Fellowship offer to become whatever God would want us to be here. I know that there's a lot more learning we're going to need to do. There's a lot more training that we'll, we'll need to do. But if... If you're getting moved by God today and this is something that um, you would like to become involved with at a deeper level, I want you to, to come and talk to me because there's several of us that are feeling that, that we want Golden Hills to be a connecting point, a safe place for people to rediscover their identity in Christ. So I want you to pray about that. Okay? All right. With that said, um, the little blue sheets on your table, if you, if you do have a question, um, and you want it to be part of the, the Q&A, which is going to be at 3 o'clock, then make sure you fill that out. Frank and a couple people from his team will come along right, uh, right before lunch is over and collect those, so just leave them at your table or go online 
and submit your questions that way. I was sneaking a peek at some of the questions. I'm going to answer one right now. Uh, yes, Jason could make the PDF available. So he will we'll convert that, or the PowerPoint, we'll convert that to a PDF after the conference, and I'll put that up on our website. I'll make sure, because I have all your emails if you registered, I'll be able to send out some instructions on how to get a copy of that, of the PowerPoint in a PDF form. All right? So here's what we're going to do for lunch so it's not a mad rush when those curtains come open because I know we're all starving. What we'll do is we'll release, we'll release four tables at a time, and we'll start with these four right here. So the doors are opening. So these four tables, go on up there and uh, get your lunch. You can fix your burgers and hot dogs back there, the, uh, the condiments. You'll come back, and then the next uh, group of four tables, when you see it die down a little bit, I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out when to go, okay? Before you go, God, thank you so much for what you're doing here today so far. Just want to pray that you would continue to bless our, our conference and bless this food and, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Enjoy your lunch. <laughs>